I'm Margaret Feinberg, and this is The Joycast. Friends, I can't believe it. More power to you. Break free from fear and take your life back just released. And it is shipping all over the country and world. And oh my goodness, so many of you have written in and you have blessed my socks off with your kind words. I'm hearing from those of you who are saying that this book is setting you free. It is pulling you out of darkness. It is equipping you to rise up in this difficult season. Man alive, it is awesome what God is doing. I've also heard from some of you who are saying that the spiritual warfare in your life has gone up. And I actually think that's a good thing because what it means is that there is a new level of freedom, grace, and victory that you are fighting for. And I am so proud of you. Well, in today's episode, I'm excited to introduce you to someone who has a rather extraordinary story. Her name is Mary Morantz, and she has gone from living in a single wide trailer in rural West Virginia to the halls of Yale Law School. Mary's story is one of remembering our roots while turning our faces to the sky for hope. From growing up in that trailer, Mary knows what it's like to feel broken, to be shaped by pain, loss, and poverty, and yet to learn how to rise above, to embrace her God-given gifts and calling, and to walk as a woman with her head held high. She's also one who has encountered wounds, difficult pains, and betrayal, and she has learned how to walk that difficult and yet beautiful road of forgiveness. She helps us to rise above the lie, I can't forgive that, and walk a brave path of forgiveness and healing. So pull up a chair as we dive straight in to this interview with Mary. We all carry hurts and wounds and pains from childhood. What were some of yours that kind of, I think, might be connecting points for some of our listeners? Yeah, you know, um, I, well, first of all, I think probably the, the more common one is there are going to be a lot of people listening who maybe didn't grow up with a lot. And that definition of a lot can change, you know. Um, I think, you know, concepts like poverty can be really slippery things to nail down. But but just to say like, hey, you know, we, we were... We were fine. There was there was food on the table, but there wasn't a whole lot extra. Um, I think that can like flip a switch in a lot of us, where we start to feel like if we don't go out and build a totally different life, like that version of the good life we saw, either on TV or in maybe like a neighbor or a friend's family, what they had. If we don't go out and build that good life and there's this like urgency to it, there's like this clock that's constantly ticking in our minds, this kind of like atomic clock ticking out all the time you have left to change your story. Um, We feel like if we don't reach that good life by a certain point or with a certain, you know, generational change where it will be different, you know, it ends with us, then we feel like our story will be wasted. That if we can't, you know, just kind of complete that like happily ever after 
then all the stuff that came before will have been for nothing. So I think that's one of the things people can connect with on like the the, the hurts that you carry with you that you continue to sort of walk around with is this, I must build the the most put together woman in the room version of my life in order to redeem the girl in the trailer. And then maybe on a more specific, but maybe not that that specific is that my mom actually left when I was nine. And so experiencing the trauma, the hurt, the pain of a parent saying, I was here with you. I did have you and I'm going to choose to walk away from you, um, you know, for, for whatever amount of time. That's a really hard thing to carry with you because you can spend the rest of your life saying, well, I guess I have to find a way to be more if I want the people that I love to stay. How have you wrestled with that? How have you, how have you navigated that as you've grown older? You know, Margaret, I feel like um, one of the parts in Dirt that was really important for me to include is this girl in the red cape. And I included her because I think a lot of people can look at someone um, who came from not, you know, very much, but then went out and built a really successful or beautiful life. And there can start to be this feeling of, well, I'm sure that that was hard, but it made you who you are. And like that, it gave you that drive and that grit and that determination. And if like that had to happen in order for you to have this beautiful life, then like it probably wasn't that bad, right? And to a certain extent, that's true. But I included the girl in the red cape because I think a lot of people do not understand how primal, survival, visceral this need for achievement can become for people who grew up without a lot. That switch gets flipped. And so I say, if I was going to make a joke here, I would say that my running is like Forrest Gump, right? Where they hand him the football and nobody ever tells him to stop. So it's just into the end zone, victory after victory. But it's not like that for me. My running from my story was more like this girl in the red cape clawing her way out of the deep, dark woods, branches scratching at her skin and her clothes, leaving pieces of her behind like breadcrumbs, the big bad wolf ripping at her heels. She runs because she knows if she stops, it just might kill her. And I say, you know, I'm running and breathless and wild-eyed, I finally look back over my shoulder and I see it. I am the girl in the red cape, but I am also the wolf. And that voice that's in my head telling me to run and never stop running that voice is my own. And so kind of just understanding that achieving for people like me um, who had that switch flipped, I say it's kind of like looking at a reflection when you weren't, you know, a mirror when you weren't ready for the reflection. And so every day, these highlight reels and gold stars are us just trying to put ourselves back together piece by piece, shard by jagged shard. For me, achieving is like oxygen. It's this thing that if I do not have, it's not something I do to make other people feel small or to feel better than. It's like, this is how I breathe. And perfectionism is the penance I think I have to pay to show up in most rooms. And so I spent years of my life achieving higher and higher successes. I mean, Yale is the number one law school in the country, contrary to what uh, Elwoods would have you believe. Actually, in the movie, they do clarify that. But, you know, it's sort of like this, like, what? Like, it's hard. That can be the approach to telling a story like this. Came from nothing to Ivy League. What? Like, it's hard. Um, Getting into the number one law school in the country and to still feel that way, it was just the sort of like wake up moment of like, there is no level of achievement. There's no shiny gold star. There's no amount of highlight reels that are, that are ever going to make me stop feeling this way. And so if I'm going to fix that, 
that hole I'm walking around with in my heart, then we got to go back to the story and make peace with the past. You know, this season, we've been looking at a lot of the false beliefs that we're tended to, um, to cling to things like I am what I do. I have to be perfect. I must, um, I must achieve. Uh, how do you go back and recognize those places? I know a lot of our listeners right now are thinking, man, I, I know I have those places. Maybe that's why I have these perfectionism tendencies. Maybe I, that's why I have this sense of like, my kid must be the absolute best or, whatever that drivenness, how do you start to recognize that in your background and learn to come to peace with that? And what role does God play in that? Yeah. You know, I actually, um, I had sort of this kind of like, and I talk about it in dirt, this like make or break moment. Um, I was working and I'm, I still work with her, a goals coach named Kim Butler from the white boardroom. And every year she comes up, um, in December and we, recap the year that had just happened and we map out the year ahead and we just do like a really big goals retreat for a few days. And she was up here for one of those retreats, those intensives. And we mapped out this whole huge whiteboard of things accomplished in the year that had just happened, things we wanted to work on in the year ahead. And I looked at her and I just broke down in tears and I said, I'm the unhappiest I've ever been. And it was after one of the most banner years in our business and banner years for achievements and for goals. And to come off a year like that, where I should have been like popping champagne and like throwing all the parties to say, I am the emptiest and the unhappiest I've ever been. Um, it was a really, it was a big wake up call. And in that moment, what Kim did, she was just like, so like frustrated because we kept coming back to this achieving for your worth, achieving for your worth theme in all of our sessions. And so she starts marking out things on the goals list for the year ahead. She marks them out with this like Sharpie, you know, big blue Sharpie on my white kitchen island. And she, you know, my name was written across the top in big letters. She bangs on my name, you know, who is Mary without any of these goals? If none, not a single one of these things comes true next year, who is Mary? And so that process of starting to separate who I am from what I do and who I am from what I've achieved um, and just to be able to answer that question of if I couldn't walk into a room and say, hey, I'm Mary, I went to Yale Law School. Hey, I'm Mary. I've built this, you know, size of a business that's made this many figures. Hey, I'm Mary and I'm an author. If I couldn't walk in and introduce myself by the things that I do, then I just had to stand alone on the person that I am. What does that start to look like? And that is a very long process of peeling back the layers. But that's a good question to start with is who are you? apart from these things. So how did you answer the question? I mean, if you have to answer the question, who is Mary? How would you answer that today? Yeah. Well, this goes back to your earlier question, Margaret, of like, what role does God play in this? And so, you know, for me, my faith is wildly important to me. And so it kind of became that net that got me at the bottom of that spiral of like, even if that, you know, even if the house went away and like, I didn't have a marriage that was beautiful. If I didn't have this, you know, job that was working, if I wasn't writing a book, if I hadn't, you know, signed on to write five books with my publisher, whatever, if I could take all of these things away and none of those got to introduce me when I walked into a room. If people turn, if that wasn't, if me just walking in as another human being wasn't enough for the person across from me, then I can say to myself, it might not be enough for you, but it's enough for God. You know, apart from all of this stuff, God says that I am loved and I am chosen. And when I start to anchor that, ident that identity in that there is no amount of achieving I can do that will impress God, right? That will that will be like, okay, well, now you're worthy of the sacrifice. He might be pleased. He might, you know, take a lot of delight in it. 
but I don't have to impress God a single second of my life in order to get his love and in in order for the sacrifice to have already been made. And a lot of the people listening right now, those of us who are wired to be achievers, I'm an Enneagram three. What you're going to hear when I say that is, oh no, I don't like that because what if I get healthy in that way? What if I find my identity in God? What if I stop you know, putting my worth in all of these things. What if that like getting healed actually takes away my drive? What if I stop achieving and doing all the things that I want to do? Because now I can just rest, you know, God already loves me. You know, I already know the ending. So now I don't have to do any of these things. And I would tell you for all of you achievers, the opposite is true because the second that your worth as a human no longer rises and falls by your latest achievements, it actually frees you up to run like crazy to these big dreams because if it doesn't work, you're still a person worthy of love. So good. So good. And I think there's more power to you when we start to discover that and that truth and that identity of who we are. Let me ask, when you look back in your journey, I, I know you know your mom leaving at the age of nine. What are some of the points in your upbringing where you've really had to walk a journey of forgiveness. Can you identify some of those? Um, Draft one to draft two of this book. (laughs) Uh, If I'm being honest with you, the the first version of this book was definitely, uh, I can now say that draft was for me. It was the first time I was getting these, the story and these words on paper. And I, you know, when you have um, put some parts of your story in a, a way in a nice little tidy box and said, I'll deal with that later. Um, as a lot of us do when we have hard things in our story, we go, you know, I just need to survive right now. I just need to get out right now. I need to go build this life right now. I'll deal with what that actually felt like later. And then we never get around to it. And then you take the lid off that box and say, I'm going to write a whole book about it. Um, that can really be like a Pandora's box of of trauma and emotions and stuff you haven't dealt with in way too long coming back out. And that's sort of what happened in draft, you know, draft one. It was just like this true kind of angry, kind of bitter version of my story. And there's a really great writing adage that says versions of your book, versions of your story should go from versions of true to truer to truest. And so the true version was, this is my story as I experienced it. It's not that that's not true, but truer is, okay, well now let me get somebody else's perception of what it looked like, of how it happened, of what was actually at play there, of their side of the story. And then the truest version is, okay, well, what is my story in light of who God says I am, of of what God says about this story. And there's sort of this, you know, big gaping divide between draft one and draft two of this book and draft one and draft two of Mary the person. Um, And the difference between those two, that bridge that had to be crossed, we started to call this but God bridge because the difference between the two drafts was grace. Um, When I went back and said, let's let's gut 50,000 words from draft one and start over. And I only had two months to do it, by the way, until we had to hand off the book. I went back and I said, what does it look like to tell this story through the eyes of grace? And not just the eyes, but the actual like root of grace where I've actually let grace get down and dig into my heart and transform me, reckon me from the inside out. You know, this internal reckoning of what it looks like to not just be this, you know, walking around sort of talking head, elbow patch, intellectual version of talking about God and grace, but to actually be somebody who's been transformed from the inside out. And that's what you see in the second draft. It's this whole story, my whole story told through the eyes of empathy, grace, and forgiveness. So Mary, I know in all of our lives, we have, we have pain points. We have places of just great grief, 
disappointment. Um, some of us have lost our parents. Some of us have lost siblings. Some of us have faced terrible diagnoses. What were some of the pain points that you experienced uh, growing up as a kid? Yeah, you know, I feel like Margaret that um, in the in the course of a lifetime, that you know, we, we all sort of have these different. Um, my friend Hannah Bruncher calls them like Sharpie marks, where it comes along and it's sort of like a slash in the calendar where the, there's life before and then there's life after. And I've had a few of those, you know, um, some of them don't happen in, in an instant like that in that Sharpie mark slash sort of way. Some of them are more ongoing, but there is, you know, your story before and then your story after. And so, for example, some of the things that I've walked through are, um, you know, I, I get into talking about I was with a, a boyfriend for a couple of years who was incredibly um, abusive you know, it started out with a shove or, or just a, a, a raised voice. And then it proceeded to pinching the back of my arms because that was a, a wound that could be inflicted that was not only incredibly painful. I don't know if you've ever had anybody just grab on and pinch like the smallest part of the back of your arm as hard as they can. Not only is that wildly painful, but it's doubly painful because it's a, a sort of secret pain. It's something that can be hidden. And it's something he could do when we were out in public and I was like talking too much or he wanted me to like be, you know, stop mid-sentence and be quiet or get in line. He could sort of like put his arm around me and pinch the back of my arm. And to the rest of the world, he just looked like the most perfect boyfriend. Um, and I think a lot of us have walked through things like that, where there's this like version of our life or a relationship we're putting out to the world where it looks like the most perfect relationship, the most perfect life. And there's this sort of like hidden pain that we were having to kind of smile through gritted teeth with, you know? Um, I've walked through things like sexual abuse when I was little, um, you know, and what it looks like to kind of go back and like actually like acknowledge that and acknowledge that it wasn't okay. Um, I have walked through losing, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna have to pause for a minute. I have walked through losing my, you know, my grandma Goldie, who was like a, both a grandma and a mother to me. And not only did I lose my grandma, but I lost her at a time when I got really, really busy with my job, with my life, with running our house, you know? And so I kind of kept putting off going to see her and going, you know, I would talk to her on the phone, but like, I didn't go and I didn't go and I didn't go. And then I got the call that she was gone. And kind of having to like wade through that grief of not just like the combination of like never again, never again would I get to talk to her or see her peel an apple in one long curly cue, but never again was made worse by wasn't there. I am so sorry. I know so many of our listeners know these moments. They've walked through them. They've seen them. And we ache with you. We ache with you. I know in my own battle with cancer, being embezzled, heartache, betrayal, it, it can feel like so much. And um, 
And yet you've risen up as this voice of hope and of healing and of forgiveness in the midst of that. What has been the core that has helped you make that transition and that journey? You know, I feel like, um, I feel like when we think about forgiveness and whether that's forgiving someone else for what they've done or forgiving ourselves for not being there, for example, I think that a really good place to start is curiosity. Um, because curiosity allows us to say, what did I not know about this situation? What did I think I knew about this situation, but I only knew part of it? What did I learn about myself, you know, going through this? Curiosity becomes an important part of forgiveness, I think, when a human, just being a human, has hurt you. Um, whether, you know, that's a parent leaving um, or just um, harsh words or, you know, there wasn't a lot growing up, something like that. I think curiosity, curiosity can really open the door to empathy. That's not to say that you should ask yourself questions like, well, what did I do for this person to be abusive? Or, you know, what did I do that made it possible for someone, you know, to find me and sexually abuse me when I was little, something like that. I think there are different kinds of hurts and curiosity can do a lot of work when the, the hurt is just, it's just human. It's not, it wasn't like malice. It wasn't, um, evil, you know? Um, and I think that that's kind of like the place that we start. We start with this place of like, well, what can be forgiven? And I will say that one of the most helpful things I ever heard on the topic of forgiveness was in the book Boundaries um, by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. Townsend. And they talk about this distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. And they say that forgiveness is an inside job. It's a one-person job. It's you deciding to untie your heart, maybe every day having to make that decision, because it frees you. And it doesn't ever involve or have to require the other person's participation. It's about reconciliation is a two-person job. In order for reconciliation to happen, that other person has to not only own what they did, but they have to repent. They have to turn away from that behavior and not present an ongoing risk. And so I think that one of the reasons that people resist forgiveness is because they think that by its very nature, it requires reconciliation. It requires allowing that person back in your life to potentially hurt you again. And that was very freeing to me to understand that I could choose forgiveness because of what it would do to my heart and how it would like free up the knots in my heart and how I could stop drinking this poison and hoping it would hurt somebody else without that necessarily meaning that I had to let that person back in my life. Mm, that is so healthy and so good. And just for our listeners who may be in an abusive situation right now, they may be at the point where the their partner is yelling at them or becoming aggressive or pinching the back of their arms. What advice and wisdom would you say to them? Oh, um, Man, that is a big question, Margaret. That's a very big question. I think that um, I, I'm always a little careful to give too much advice on, on, on a subject like that, which is so completely nuanced. Um, I'm, I'm always a big believer in getting yourself to safety first. You know, that repenting, that turning away from that behavior, that conversations about possible forgiveness and reconciliation, they can only happen once safety is in place. Um, and so whether that's going to a family member or whether that's going to like getting, you know, a, you're a counselor at your church or something like that involved, 
Um, but I think just physically getting you out of the immediate harm and danger is step one. And then those conversations about, is this a forgiveness situation and we go our separate ways or is there a reconciliation here that's possible? Um, I only know, and that was one of the things that was very important to me uh, in telling this story is I never wanted to say, I lived through this one very specific set of circumstances. Therefore, here is the be all end all universal truth for everyone. So I only know for me, if I didn't get out of that relationship, I was probably, it was probably going to kill me. Um, but you know, there's a whole spectrum of marriages and relationships and factors at play. And so I would say get to safety first and then get people who are qualified, you know, counselors or whatever involved who can actually speak into, is this a forgiveness or is it a, you know, or is there, is reconciliation possible? Absolutely. We want to just push that. If you are in an unsafe situation, you need to get out immediately. Do not wait. Go, go, go. And I love Mary's advice. Then as soon as you can get wise counsel, get somebody who has a clear outside perspective of the situation, who you trust, who, and maybe several voices, you know, is this a situation where I should stay or is this a relationship where I should go? That is so helpful and so life-giving. And I'm confident there is someone out there right now. You need to hear these incredible and inspiring words. Friends, Mary's book, Dirt, is not just profound and insightful, but it is beautifully written. And I cannot wait for you to get a copy of it. Mary, where is the best place for people to find out more about you as well as your book? Yeah, definitely. So the central hub for kind of all things book is thebookdirt.com. So T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com. It is a book called Dirt, which is kind of a, a strange name. People are always like, Dirt? And I'm like, yeah, I like the stuff in the ground um, because the the beautiful uh, can grow out of the broken and the muddiest parts of our story can be where God does his best miracles. And so you can find all the book stuff at thebookdirt.com. And then I'm at Mary Morantz on all the socials. Awesome. I love it. And you have your own podcast. I do. Yeah. The Mary Morant Show. And you can find that at themarymorantshow.com. Awesome. Mary, it has been such a delight. Thank you for your honesty, your vulnerability, your beauty, and your inspiration during this conversation. I am so grateful for you. Thanks so much for having me. 